720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. A little bit different vibe we got going with the music today. I like change. It's always fun. All right, so we've got a lot to do on the show today. A little bit later, we're going to be talking with Danny Ecker. Excuse me about Chicago's pro sports teams and how they're going to deal with the upcoming legalization of sports betting as that rolls out. We're going to talk to him and see how sports teams themselves are dealing with that. But right now, we are joined by Zeke Fox, who is a Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg. And regular listeners of this show will recall that we have been talking about Bloomberg's series of stories on predatory lenders. We've been talking about that as they've been coming along. His colleague, Zachary Miter, has joined us several times. Zeke, welcome to the program. There's a really interesting uh, additional uh, uh, beat to this story now. I'm, I'm glad you're, you're joining us to talk about it. And that is uh, a New York move to, to that are steps that are being taken to make it even more difficult for predatory lenders to seize assets of small businesses. So thanks for joining us to talk about that today. Thank you, Amy. Uh, certainly. Yes, well, so, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, talk us through the story. For those who, who may not know the backstory of this series... Talk us through that a bit and bring us up to speed, and then tell us about this newest this newest piece of it. So, it's uh, great news this week in New York. The uh, state legislator has voted to ban this practice that we've been writing about, which is called confessions of judgment. And essentially, uh, this is when a lender, as a condition of getting a loan, makes a small business sign a document where they admit in advance to to not paying back the loan. And what that means is that the lender can go to court without any notice or any hearing and win a judgment against a small business and seize their assets. Wait, which is so, so it's devastating small businesses across the country. Absolutely. And as I said, we've talked to your colleague, Zach Miter, uh, about that a few times on the show. And that's really, I mean, it's so stunning to think of. But in the process of getting a loan, you're a small business, and it seems, uh, it sounds like you've gotten into a wind tunnel. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on hold for just one second, and I'm going to let uh, esteemed producer Sam help you out there for a minute and check your audio. And we're going to come back to you here in a second. But essentially, let me talk you through this a bit. This uh, this project at Bloomberg is really fascinating. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sure and tweet links out to it because it's so interesting. And I, I, I'm really a big fan of these uh, kind of deep dive journalism pieces that focus on, on a topic very deeply through many different stories. Um, and this is one of them. So the latest is that uh, New York lawmakers took steps to prevent these predatory lenders from using the state's court system to seize the assets of small businesses. And as, as Zeke was just saying, um, you know, part of that is this idea that prior to getting the loan or in the process of getting the loan, in the shuffle of paperwork, there would be uh, a document that was signed that essentially would kind of pre-allow these lenders to take uh, these small businesses to court. And in one of the first stories when we were talking with Zach Miter, there was an example of a Florida couple who had this business and suddenly started getting notified that, that they were in quite a lot of trouble in a New York court. And so I think we've we've worked out some audio issues. And so, Zeke, let's bring you back up. Hey, there we go. Hi, Zeke. Hi, I am so sorry about that. I was driven outside by screaming toddlers, uh, but I'm... <laughs> 
Ready to explain now. <laughs> no worries. You know what? We've had dogs and toddlers and all kind of things in the background here. Is life happens. I totally get it. It's all good. And so, so I was just kind of catching some listeners up on, on what this practice is about. And so what is the latest in this story that has just happened with, with New York lawmakers, particularly around the role of, of New York City marshals? So what, the step in the process that I hadn't explained before is that these, there's a, these city officials who take these judgments and go and seize the assets for these predatory lenders, and they're getting tons of money for it. There's officials that are making more than a million dollars doing this. And the state legislature, they didn't vote yet to uh, ban this practice, but uh, they said that they would only uh, renew this program for one year and that they would be studying it next year and holding hearings to decide whether they really wanted this to go forward, if this was really a good thing for a government official to be doing. So uh, Zach and I are just thrilled that the New York State Legislature is taking these steps because even though it's a New York official that's doing it, they're doing it to businesses everywhere. So if New York uh, changes the system, it could really benefit florists, pizzerias, truck drivers, people all over the country who uh, take out these loans without realizing what they're getting into. What led you and Zach to to start digging into this topic initially? It's such an interesting one, and I think it seems like it's one that's kind of gone unchecked for such a long time. So I started writing about stockbrokers. And in the stockbroker world, if you do something bad, there's a regulator that can kick you out and say you can't be a stockbroker anymore. And so I would meet a lot of these stockbrokers who would tell me, hey, I got kicked out, but you know what, I'm onto this new thing, business loans. And once I heard that, uh, you know, three or four times, I thought, hmm, I mean, if they did something bad when they're stockbrokers, what are they doing with these business loans? And why are they allowed to do it? No one's, clearly no one's paying much attention. And once we started talking to small business owners, we realized that, they were using the same deceptive tactics that they had to sell uh, stock scams with to market loans. And that, in fact, is a booming business. And since the financial crisis has gotten really big, anyone who's got a business probably gotten a fax or a, sp- you know, a cold call or something from one of these guys. They're trying their best to push these loans. Oh, absolutely. I think they, I mean, they're in the mail all the time. I've seen my neighbors get them. I, you know, there's, they're everywhere. I think they're hard to miss. I, you know, you see them thrown around. They even get sent to businesses. I mean, they send them to radio hosts. I know I've gotten one here, and I think they grossly underestimate my ability to make decisions around here. <laughs> However, I, you know, I, I do want to say the, you know, to the power of journalism that that is, we can't say enough about that. But this bill uh, in New York was drafted in response to this work that that you and your colleague have been doing. These are this series that you've been working on about these lending practices. I mean, this this really moved the needle and and caused lawmakers to say, hey, you know what? This is this has been. We see, you know, the light has been shined on these the, these things now, and suddenly there's nowhere for us to hide or for this to hide. We've got to do something about it. And I, I think that's really important to highlight to show what a what a difference this series has made. Well, thank you, and I'm excited that next week the. Uh, in Washington, D.C., the House Small Business Committee is holding a hearing to discuss this problem and the need for a national fix. And they've invited Jerry Bush, a plumbing contractor who he wrote about, to testify. And he's someone who ran into a hard time, took out one loan to try and keep his business going. And then the 
as he had trouble paying it, he took out more and more loans till he was paying thousands of dollars every day to these guys. And he totally blames himself and feels so bad for uh, his family business failing due to these loans that he at one point tried to kill himself. Um, so I'm just thrilled that he's going to have the chance to tell his story to Congress and that they can uh, think about making a national fix to this problem. Yeah, indeed. And, and you know, I think just this idea of the, the confessions of judgment is, is I think, a, a document not a lot of people knew about before this series started, at least not, you know, the average citizen. Something that's really difficult to understand, and um, y- you know, the idea that, that this would be kind of put on you in the, uh, in, in, you know, in the process of getting a loan and all the paperwork and all the stuff that goes along with getting a loan. That, that I, it seemed from from following this series that a lot of people didn't even realize they had signed such a thing, or they didn't fully grasp what it was when they signed it. Right. I mean, this is when you get one of these loans, you're signing a whole stack of papers. And uh, you wouldn't be taking one of these loans if you weren't in a tight spot and you're in a rush. So you may not realize exactly what you're signing. And you may think, you know what, this lender would never go after me. This isn't going to come into play. Um, What you don't realize is that if you even miss one payment, they can use this document you signed to win a court case against you and, and have your bank accounts frozen to basically shut down your business. So I just, even if you read it carefully, I don't think it would be, it's very confusing. You, uh, and I don't think you would realize the implications. And I, the business owners I talked to did not realize what the implications were. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's such an important series. And again, uh, I'm, I'm so glad to see that lawmakers also saw it and also said, you know, we have to change the laws to protect citizens as a result of, of your reporting with your colleagues. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, get back in there to that, to that toddler, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure they need your... <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, thank you for thank you for having me on, and I'm I'm so sorry about the audio problem. No, don't don't worry about it. Again, life totally happens. We all get it. We're all humans doing our best. No worries at all. Well, hope we can have you back on uh, again sometime when the the next chapter of this of this ongoing series goes. And again, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to tweet all these links out so that you can read them for yourselves. They're really really interesting. Thank you so much again, Zeke, for for being with us today. Zeke Fox, Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg. Thanks. All right, so we are going to take a little break, get you to news, all that good stuff back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Booth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. You know, a big part of business that we talk about often is the role that social media plays in things. And uh, I, I'm always entertained by the things that... that um, that that really outrage the the citizens of Twitter and get people good and mad. Uh, Bob Kessler, I don't know if you saw any of this, but like uh, recently, um, Whataburger, a big stake of it was purchased by a Chicago investment firm. I did hear about that. Okay, did you see Twitter lose their mind? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> it was really. Fun. I mean, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but uh, so B- BDT Capital Partners uh, announced that it was uh, last week that it was going to acquire the majority stake in Whataburger, and immediately, and I don't know if it's because I uh, spent a good part of my childhood in Texas or what, but 
it was like Texas Twitter, even professional athletes connected to Texas lost their minds <laughs> over this. Yeah, Texans take Whataburger very seriously. It's true. and it, it It's really true. And interestingly, you know, it has such regional hold, whereas there are more... Um, there are more Whataburger locations than there are In-N-Out and Shake Shack. And those are, you know, more a little bit bigger footprint of brands. Um, there are more Whataburgers in that. And it's, and the reason they, they, the family wanted to sell this part of it was because they want, they said, you know, it's time to scale and go, go national and go bigger. Uh, <laughs> and yet, I mean, you would think that any Whataburger fan on the internet was just betrayed by this. <laughs> it was so funny. And it was like, I, I wouldn't, I didn't see that coming on social media. I didn't think people were going to lose their minds like that. But nonetheless, I mean, they really, really lost their minds. Even JJ Watt, who's a, a lineman for the Houston Texans, he encouraged his Twitter followers, and he's got something like four or five million Twitter followers. He was asking people to chip in and buy Whataburger back. And he was like, really betrayed by this. Uh, one tweet said, um, uh, 182 men didn't die at the Alamo just so we could give Whataburger over to Chicago. Just saying. <laughs> it was like people really felt betrayed by this. Well, we, I mean, about what was it, 10, 15 years ago when Macy's bought Marshall Fields? Oh, same. You know, there wasn't as much social media back then, but the betrayal I was can there. Empathize that. Yeah. And know? people would like, people would dig in and, and say, they would still call, you know, still call it Marshall Fields, even though it was like That's definitely right. a Macy's now. They're on State Street. People are like, I'm going to Marshall Fields. Just yeah, or to- Willis Tower, Sears Tower. I mean, same kind of thing. you know, and we've talked about this before when um, Guaranteed Rate got the got the uh, made that deal with with the cell. Like I had just gotten out of the habit of saying Comiskey. You know, and then suddenly yeah. it's guaranteed rate. So it's like, I still have to, I'll go to this uh, d- uh, guaranteed rate. <laughs> I'll still kind of stop myself. So sometimes I just say socks park, just to like keep it easy. <laughs> like I can't mess that one up. Right, exactly. Yeah. So this is less business related, but there was another thing that, that has been uh, rolling around social media that has been absolutely hilarious. And that is, so um, Jimmy Fallon asked for... Um, wedding fails. He asked people to tweet their wedding fails. And that's not something like I don't... I'm not in that. I don't have Pinterest boards full of my eventual wedding stuff. You know, I'm like not that person. So um, I, I, that wasn't really on my radar. I thought, oh, I don't even know what that means. Something went bad at the wedding. Oh no, these were absolutely hilarious. Some of them were, uh, and I realize we're veering out of business a little bit, but it's so funny. These were people both saying, "Hey, I thought this would be a really good idea at the time. I don't know what I was thinking." All the way to look at this horrible thing that happened at my wedding or, you know, someone trying to stop it. Two that stand out to me, someone's mother-in-law showed up in a wedding dress just to make a point that she didn't approve of anything. Ow. Oh, that would be rough. We're fine line between comedy and tragedy here. Oh, gosh. Can, I mean, if I were that woman, I would look at my soon-to-be husband and say, listen, I'm going to need you to deal with your mother right now. <laughs> I'm going to need you to make this problem go away. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to say. Like, cause you, the bride are not going to win there. Like there's nothing you can do. So I just thought like, that's uh that one's a little rough. The other one that I thought was so funny was somebody thought it would be um, a good idea to have like a Skeletor. <laughs> so, so someone like dressed up as Skeletor and showed up at these people's wedding. By good. Do you mean something that would later end up on the Jimmy Fallon show? Then yes. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I can't, 
I mean, the only one I've personally witnessed, well, that's not true. I've witnessed a couple that were questionable, but I did go to a wedding that was very fancy. It was very beautiful. It was, uh, at, uh, the Orrington Hotel in, in, uh, Evanston. It's a beautiful ballroom there. Uh, I hope these people are listening, but I thought it was kind of questionable. They, uh, entered, you know, a couple sometimes like have a song that's playing when they enter. They entered to, uh, a Nickelback song. Wedding fail, okay. You know, and a lot of people have some really strong feelings about about Nickelback, and apparently the groom did not. He's a fan, and so, but this just kind of groan went over the room as soon as the song started. Everybody's like, "Ugh!" I mean, yay the couple. Ugh. I get that. Yeah. Oh, it was. Have you ever witnessed a wedding fail? I'm trying to think of some. Not really. I mean, my father was 45 minutes late to his wedding to my mother. His own wedding. That's a wedding <laughs> fail, but you obviously weren't there. I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. And, and it, I can't think of any. Now, I would say, as a result of my dad being late, there is the only picture I have from my parents' wedding. It's the two of them. They both look quite happy. My mom's parents are on either side of them for this, for this picture that they're posing for. Both of my grandparents look so mad. They just look like... Understandable. Oh, they're so mad. And apparently my dad walked in and said, like kind of patted my grandmother on the back and said something like, but you thought I wasn't going to show up. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. My dad and I both do this. We joke through uncomfortable moments. <laughs> we both do that. So I, I'm going to say that was a wedding fail, but it ultimately worked out. They're, they're right. still happily married decades and decades later. So it, it worked out okay. But like, ooh, questionable move from Papa Guth on that one. Did he ever say why? No. And that's weird. I was actually just talking about this not long ago that, it still remains, he will not say why. He's like, I, because I was late. Well, why were you late? Because I was. What were you doing? Well, I was just late. <laughs> it's like, who knows? I mean, that's opened him up to quite a bit of speculation over the years. Like, were you panicking? Were you thinking about not showing up? It was a setup for that really great punchline he told your grandmother. That was what it was. The whole thing was a joke. Yeah, like, <laughs> then I can say. If I'm late, then I can say this to my... This yeah, will make a great story. This is going to endear me as a son-in-law. No, 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 no. So anyway, I thought that was... Uh, it's always interesting to see what what social media will grab onto. And I thought that was kind of a funny one. Um, you know, because so often it's where a brand has done such a huge misstep. And it's something like they were trying to get on part of a... And I feel like we've talked about this a dozen times on the show, where they've been trying to get... Uh, onto a, you know, be part of a hashtag or, or ride some wave of some trend and just ended up really stepping in it and making, uh, you know, alienating people or, or having a laugh at someone's expense and it backfires on you them know, horribly. We must have the data by now is how many times when people have tried to go viral and it's just completely well, know, that's pear shape versus like it working. Because if you try to do it, it probably means you're going to bomb. That's a thing. You know, I, I feel like People have come to me to ask, like brands have been like, hey, I want to make a viral video. Can you help me? I'm like, here's the thing. Viral is an outcome. It's not a strategy. You can't. Right. You can say, I'm going to make a really awesome video, but it's an outcome. It's not It's not something you can plan to do because you just have to kind of grab the, the group, like the hive mind in the right moment. And that's just kind of alchemy. You can't really... It's very, very difficult to do that. And people way out of my pay grade with lots of lots more degrees than I have, uh, you know, make a lot of money to just attempt to do that and don't always succeed. It's so. pretty much just own the moment. That's pretty much it. I suppose. But man, anyway, backing up to Whataburger, I, as someone who lived in Texas for a very long time, am excited at the idea that there might be a Whataburger anywhere near here, my, my adopted home of Chicago, because right now I know exactly what exit 
in uh, as you're you're around St. Louis, that's the, the last one. That's the northernmost Whataburger because you got to stop at that one if you're driving back up here because that's it. That's it. But I like the idea there might be. I'm telling you, friends, Chicagoans. The Whataburger frontier will expand. I think. And people have strong feelings about this. I, I'm going to put a Whataburger up against an In-N-Out burger any day. In an, any day. What? Yeah. Oh. In-N-Out burger? Whoa. It's delicious. It's a delicious burger, but I'm going to put the Whataburger up against it. I would. Wow. We did the same thing with Chick-fil-A, right? When Chick-fil-A came here, everyone was like, this chicken sandwich is like amazing and... Maybe, but yeah. then they also had like political tie yeah, that, that, that made it kind of weird yeah. for everybody. So people had some kind of, yes. you know, people had uh, moral stuff attached to that too. I don't know. And who was the guy who was the Whataburger spokesman for a while? It's country singer. Uh, was it Mel Tillis? I think he did that those commercials. sounds right. I don't remember, but yeah, I, I remember there being somebody, but I don't remember who it was. He is deceased. So they got to get a really good spokesperson now. Well, his daughter is a country singer. so Yeah, but, but I don't, I think the whole thing is like now they're going to make Whataburger not be so tied to Florida... In the South, yeah, Florida, yeah, Texas, Georgia, yeah. So they gotta they gotta shake their country ways and go go national, broad appeal here. That Bob will Kessler. not go over go over well with the again. Texans. The Texans are gonna they, feel betrayed. They hate that. As did the man who yeah. tweeted, "The men didn't die at the Alamo just so we could give one worker over to Chicago." Bless that guy. I'm gonna tweet that guy and be like, "Buddy, it's okay. I'm here. There's lots of people from Texas here." We're good. We're going to welcome it. We're going to take care of Whataburger. And I will say there's unbelievable hospitality at Whataburger. Like people are really noticeably kind that work there at Whataburger. And so it's a very chill, happy place. I hope that carries. That's all I got to say. Then we got to go to break. And now I'm hungry. And you're welcome. There you go. Talk about burgers at lunchtime. It's a business lunch. That's what we do. Anyway, I'm going to take a little break. On the other side of uh, this break, we're going to be talking with Danny Ecker from Crane's Chicago Business all about how... Uh, pro sports teams, how they're going to deal with the the coming legalization of sports betting. It's kind of a complicated topic, but Danny will break it down for us. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. <music> 720 WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us. So as pending sports betting kind of sinks in as that's coming to Illinois and we're sorting all that out. The city's sports teams are starting to think about what that means for them from that's ranging from everything from like opening wager win, wa- wagering windows at their facilities, potentially all the way to just how gambling fits with them overall. We're joined now by Danny Ecker from Crane's Chicago Business, who has been covering this topic quite a bit here to talk with us about the latest. Hey, Danny, thanks for being with us today. Sure thing. So talk us through this, because, you know, this was one of the first thoughts I had as we started having this conversation in Illinois about sports betting and legalizing it, of how our, I mean, this is a sports town, so uh, we it, it certainly behooves us to, to think through how is that going to work with all of our sports teams? How are they going to do things? How are we going to do things? How does that all fit together? Right. So like you mentioned, I mean, this is this is a huge opportunity, first of all, for these teams. You know, there's an op- there's a, an option for some of these teams to get. I mean, they're expensive, but get uh, betting licenses themselves to potentially open betting windows inside the stadium. So, I mean, just kind of let that sink in for a second. Something that's very common uh, in Europe and pretty much everywhere else in the world is sporting events, but not here. Um, and then, really, the the biggest upside, sort of right off the bat, is. You know, when people have skin in the game, when they're betting on games, you know, there's there are plenty of studies that show that those people tend to 
pay attention more, watch more games, go to more games. They interact with these team brands in all kinds of different ways. Uh, and for the teams, that means, you know, new, new customers, new fans, bigger fan bases, and which means more lucrative sponsorship deals and higher TV ratings and ultimately, uh, you know, larger broadcast rights fees, which are, uh, you know, have become a, a key piece of the, of the revenue puzzle for these teams. So it's a huge potential upside. Um, the, the, I guess the risk and the question that these teams are asking now is how do we want to kind of make betting part of the fan experience? How do we promote this in a way that doesn't alienate some of our longtime fans and families that, you know, want to interact with our brand without sports betting? They don't want betting to be part of their game day experience, and that's kind of one of those things you can't disaffect those fans because these are teams that for generations have built built them these brands that are family friendly entertainment brands you know in many ways so it's it's kind of a, an interesting balance that these teams need to strike and then those are the conversations i think internally that they're having right now absolutely and do you get the sense that uh, different different sports are approaching this in vastly different ways or is it even down to the team level of different teams just have kind of a different mindset uh, i guess what i'm asking is how much will be league regulated and how much will be on the individual team you know, I think to start, I think the leagues are going to dictate a lot of what happens. I think teams certainly will have, uh, you know, a lot of say in terms of whether they really want to participate in promoting betting or doing sponsorship deals with casinos and, and other betting entities. I mean, you know, it's interesting just here in Chicago. So you've got the Bears, who uh, I think it was seven years ago now, it was 2012. You know, the NFL, for example, said, okay, we're going to start allowing teams to do sponsorship deals with casinos. It was the first time that happened. And the Bears said, okay, thanks, but, you know, on a moral basis, they said they weren't going to do it. You know, and that's the Bears. They're, they're kind of notoriously conservative um, with McCaskey family ownership. Now, the Cubs, meanwhile, the Cubs have come out recently and said, you know, they're not, they haven't really kind of shown their hand about how they're going to deal with these, with sports betting. But, you know, Crane Kenny, the president of business operations for the Cubs, he said during spring training, you know, they've got this new TV network launching in February. And, you know, maybe we'll see some programming that's specifically catered to the gambling crowd. And so I think you're going to have teams taking their own approaches to it. The leagues certainly are starting to embrace it, which is kind of when you sit back and think about, you know, how far these leagues have come from just sort of saying, you know, they don't want betting to be anything, any part of the game. And, Finally, as it's sort of genera- generationally become more accepted, you know, they, they can finally sort of say, all right, we recognize that the more betting there is, the more people uh, pay attention to our games and pay attention to our teams, and that is good for business. And uh, so they're, they're just kind of figuring out how they can kind of gradually get back, get, it, get into this without, uh, without putting people off. Yeah. As you note in the story, this this is really pointing towards a really nuanced marketing approach. And then I have to think that there's a very different approach for for, um, you know, say the fans watching versus the fans attending. That seems like two very different experiences to to consider when when kind of putting this sports betting overlay upon the two. Yeah, I talked to some sports marketing guys who said, you know, they, they, these teams kind of need to develop these targeted marketing plans like they would like a youth marketing strategy or just, you know, their Hispanic marketing strategy or a marketing to women. You know, if they want to try to specifically target a certain message that they feel like will be more popular with a certain demographic, they need to kind of take that same approach when it comes to gambling and kind of figure out how do we 
How do we reach out and connect with these people in a way that makes them engage with our brand in a way that we want them to? Um, you know, and it's, and, you know, you talk about uh, sort of sitting on the couch versus being at the game. I mean, totally different experiences. And, you know, we may, I mean, look, the, the teams don't want people sitting in, uh, in seats in the stadium and eventually potentially making bets on their phone uh, a couple of years down the road where they're not kind of paying attention to the game. You know, I mean, that's, that's sort of the risk here is, you know, do teams want uh, fans to be, um, you know, watching games differently, cheering differently? Do they care more about their fantasy team than how their team is doing? I mean, I, you know, you, you kind of, I'm sure talk to people all the time who, you know, they'll go to a Bears game and they say, I really want the Bears to win today, but I also want Aaron Rodgers to throw for 300 yards. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, just change in loyalty shift. Um, and so there's, there's some long-term implications for that. And I think that's what teams are trying to sort through right now is, is how do we, you know, do we want, how much of that do we want? How much can we accept? Uh, and what does that do to kind of this brand that we built? And, you know, I mean, so much of these, what these teams build is, you know, it's, it's, it's marketing themselves as, oh, you know, this is a family affair. You know, your, your parents and your grandparents, they rooted for this team. And so you root for this team. And, you know, when you kind of take, you sort of erode a little bit of the loyalty, I think that's, uh, it's just a little bit of a dangerous thing that teams can play with. So they're, they're trying to figure it out. Yeah, that's a good point. There is a very emotional stake in, in rooting for a team that, that does feel kind of family history based, you know. I can't help but wonder too, and you do mention this in the story, you know, I, I have talked about horse racing so many times on this station, probably more than people want me to. <laughs> I, I talk about horse <laughs> racing a lot, but I wonder if there are lessons to be learned from horse racing because they're, uh, you know, a little bit different because it's less about a family crowd, but I do wonder if there are some lessons there in terms of just, uh, cultivating fans and having a having a hospitable environment to fans, both watching at home and in person, in that realm that that other sports franchises could learn from horse racing, or as you know, uh, also in in European sports, because that's it's a lot more common to have sports betting attached to that. So interesting, right? About there, yeah. So I mean, horse racing. That's you know, a good example to say. Okay, you know, it's not like it's a new thing that that sporting venues and, and events have, have been marketing to both gamblers and, you know, families and kids. It's, it's just something that, you know, horse racing is, has been doing that for, for decades. And, you know, I, I think that it's sort of a little different in that horse racing has kind of always been associated with gambling, whereas these professional teams of the major leagues have, have not. Um, uh, but, you know, to your point, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's being thoughtful about the experience of when you're there, you know, where is the location for betting and where are the advertising, you know, where's that, that happening? Where is that going to be in the face of families and kids or is there separate areas? I mean, it's, I think physically just separating those areas is something that uh, is a lesson to be learned. And that's something that you see in a lot of European venues. Um, you know, there are betting windows at soccer matches, for example, in Europe, but they're also, you know, if you go around the world, there are a lot of these stadiums that have, you know, betting lounges. So think of it as, you know, some of the, the, uh, the suites that these teams now have plenty of in the stadiums and, you know, just kind of making one so that it's not really going to be in the face of anyone who wants to be, uh, who doesn't want it, but, you know, there's a lounge that you could go in that, you know, becomes part of the experience for those who want it to say, Hey, you know, I'm getting up to go get a beer and get some food. And I'm also going to swing by the lounge, hang out. And it's not, you know, I think that they kind of make sure that it's not sort of a seedy place where there's a bunch of, you know, degenerate gamblers in there. It's more supposed to be kind of a place that is vibrant and fun. And, you know, hey, by the way, if you want to make a bet mid-game about, you know, 
who's going to score the most points in the third quarter of a, of a Bulls game. I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that, that they might be able to kind of do in a tasteful way. So yeah. it, it's, it's certainly a, it's something that is, it's, there's a lot of cues to be taken from, from places all over the world where this has been the norm for a long time. Yeah, definitely. And I think it will definitely bring us uh, to a place of a lot deeper understanding about the economics of sports in general, just, just how sports works and, and all of the economic pieces. Cause I think so many of us are just looking at it from a, pa- a fan perspective. So a lot there, Thank you so much, Danny Ecker from Crane's Chicago Business, for joining us today to break it all down. Thanks, Amy. Thanks so much. All right, we're going to take a little break, get you news, all the good stuff, back in just a bit here on 720 WGN.